you're listening to the Country Bible Church Sermon Cast. This sermon, titled We Gather, was presented by Andrew Anderson on September 24th, 2017. Hey, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff today. I'm excited. I'm excited that we get to be uh, in, our cheery, in our series at my church. We're in week two, and I want to invite you right up front to go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. This is going to be our primary text for the next four weeks together. Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can raise your hand, and one of our ushers would be more than glad to bring you a Bible. These Bibles are yours to have and to keep. We just ask you to bring it with you every week and read it, study it, take down notes, write in it, circle, highlight, all of the above, as we believe this is our foundation for the formation of who we are in Christ Glad to have you guys here with us. For those of you who are watching online, welcome to you. A special welcome. Glad that we have our amazing online community that supports the ministry here at our church as well. Today, as we, as we pick up where we left off last week, I want to recap for us just momentarily what we were in last week. Last week, we were talking about the difference between a mission and a vision and our identity. And I, I, I think I... I tried to do a good job of helping us understand that we don't need to come up with a unique mission and vision statement for our church, that that was pretty prominent and the thing to do back in the 90s and, and early 2000s. But the reason that we don't really need to come up with something is it would be reinventing the wheel. You see, Jesus gives us collectively the capital C church, our mission and our vision. Our mission, we believe, is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all these things. We get that from Matthew chapter 28. And we believe that our vision is really clear. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is our mission. This is our vision. This is collective capital C church. This spans demographic, this spans geography, this spans denomination. This is what each and every member of the body of Christ is called to. So what does that leave us with then as a church? If that's our mission and vision, then what are, what are we doing this at my church series for? Well, I'm glad you asked and I want to tell you. Here's what I believe. I believe that within our own context, we each have a unique ministry that we're called to. It's our existence. It's why we do what we do. It's the DNA of who we are. And in our church, we discovered last week as we were in John chapter 4, Jesus in Samaria and his encounter with the woman at the well, we learned through the relationship that she builds with Jesus over a short period of time. If you had your Bibles last week, I asked you to highlight several names or identifiers of Jesus. She begins with Jew, recognizes him as a Jew, and from Jew she calls him Sir, which was a, a term of respect from Sir. She says, you must be a prophet because he says things about, he speaks into her life and says things about her that he wouldn't know otherwise. From prophet, she talks about the Messiah, the promised one. And then in the end, she tells her community, come and see the savior of the world, the one who's changed everything. We learned last week that when we encounter Jesus, everything about our lives changes, which is where we get our existence statement, our identity. It's who we are at our church, at my church, we are a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. That's why we do what we do. If we ever cease to exist to be a community where people encounter Jesus, or we cease to be a community where people encounter Jesus that leads to life change, then in my personal opinion, we cease to exist as a church. We may still gather, 
There still may be bricks and mortar. There still may be people in the building. But we have then migrated to little more than a social gathering or a social club. But as long as we keep our existence, our identity at the forefront, who we are, what we're doing, and why we're doing what we're doing, that we exist as a community for people to encounter Jesus and for their lives to be changed forever, that will drive everything else we do. At the end of last week's message, I let you know that over the next four weeks, starting today, we're going to talk about our core four. This is our DNA. Now, there are a lot of core values we have as a church. And, and I don't know that any are, 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 are necessarily bad or wrong, but there are four that we think are, are, are standout, that are bigger than the rest. These are the four, th- four things that we are going to hang our hat on, things that we are going to hold true to. Today, I'm going to give you it right up front. One of the first four of our, our core four is that we, at my church, we gather. Now, this will make more sense here in a few moments as we get to talking about our, our, our core four and why they exist and what we're, what we're there for. But let me help you with this. Contextually, to understand why we even have a core four, I want to explain it to you this way. My mom is moving to Blair, Nebraska. My mom, my mom has decided, my mom has decided in, in her age and with where she's at in life that she is going to sell all of her possessions. She has a garage sale this weekend, in fact. It was on Facebook Live. My wife and I called her and said, hey, what are you doing? And she walked us around her garage and her driveway and inside of her house where literally everything that I remember as a kid, all the things that we bought as a family were up for sale. And I'm walking, she's walking around, I'm just going, wow, this just got real. My kids are incredibly excited. My wife is looking forward to it. I am getting ready for it. Uh, it will be a good, a good time. I love my mom. I love my mom uh, and what my mom lacks in stature, she makes up for in personality. You see, my mom's only four foot nine inches tall, and she's got a huge personality. What I am most looking forward to is for you, church, to meet my mom, because then it will explain a lot. (laughs) And I will just point. She'll be right up front somewhere with my with my wife, she'll be my biggest, she'll have the number one finger on as I'm preaching, and oh, I'm excited to have my mom with us in our community so that she can experience, this is the first time she'll have lived outside of the Northwest. Now this will be, uh, she was just with us here a few weeks ago in, in Blair visiting and preparing us for her, for her to come, so she is selling all of her belongings this week, she's putting her house up on the market next week, houses in Oregon are turning around within 24 hours, and so it's likely that my mom could be here within 45 days. So we're excited, but as my mom is selling off all of her possessions, and she's going around the driveway, and I'm beginning to identify things that I I care about, things that were dear to me as a child, the the one thing she's not getting rid of are the 50-gallon bags full of 35-millimeter film that have never been developed. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you had a mom... That took every opportunity in life, and I mean every opportunity. Oh, you got a runny nose, honey? Here, hold on. <laughs> Let me take a picture. Here's some Kleenex. I don't know, maybe you are that mom where everything is a photo opportunity. My mom is going to bring with her her pictures, 
her scrapbooks. My mom was scrapbooking before scrapbooking was a thing. Like she was doing it when they had these green, uh, really foamy looking things that were like 24 by 24 and inside you open it up and they had this nasty looking glue kind of diagonal and these, these, these sheets that if you pulled too hard, you ripped them and then it got stuck and then you put the picture in there but then the glue dried out so the pictures would fall so then you had to tape them or glue them from behind anyway and put the sheet back over and then tape the, you know what I'm talking about? How many of you know what I'm talking about? This whole section over here is like, um, is that from the 19s? Yes, be quiet. <laughs> before Shutterfly existed, my friends. There was life before social media and Shutterfly. My wife, my mom, well, my wife, she scrapbooks everything too, but, my, but we do it in a way that's relevant. <laughs> my, not that you're irrelevant, mom, if you're watching. I know that you're watching. She's going to bring these photo albums with her and we're going to sit down inevitably with my children and they're going to be on my mom's uh, lap and she's going to go through these pictures and relive all of our childhood post 16. I was adopted when I was 16 and so she's going to relive these moments with, with my kids. What I can tell you is as often as my mom took photos and the scenery changed and the style of clothes Clothing changed, although my friends who are my age, our junior high years are being relived right now. My son comes in one day and he's down there. I'm like, what are you doing, man? And he's tight rolling his cuffs of his pants. Oh, he's like, dad, this is what everybody's doing. I'm like, bro, I did that when I was 12. Before there was such a thing as skinny jeans. I did that. This last week, my son and I got to be in Seattle, and I'll tell you a little bit about that maybe here as we go along. But as we were traveling, junior high hair was right in my face. It was like flock of seagulls all over again. There was a woman at the registry helping me in her hair. It was like the wave that you take, and it was four inches straight up, and then over like this, and it was a whole can of aerosol, both sides, front and back, and I saw her hair, and I was literally in seventh grade, Kellogg Middle School, Z100s as a DJ, and I'm just going like, oh, yeah, I got that music. Uh-huh. Yeah, I got TLC going. I got boys. Like, it was right there in front of me again. We were relevant again, Alicia, for just a moment. Speaking of relevance and hair, there was a party in my neighborhood yesterday, and my son was cutting the grass, and the, the party's about four or five houses down, and some folks noticed the guy cutting the grass, and they said, is that Pastor Andrew? It was my son. And Pastor Mark Zanato, whom you met earlier, said, well, I'm sure Pastor Andrew would be flattered because of how skinny my son is. You know it's not Andrew because of the hair. So Mark is looking for a job, if you know anyone who's hiring. <laughs> the thing about these photos, if you look at my photos growing up, I'm the oldest of six, three boys, three girls, is that regardless of the scenery or the clothes or the, the backdrop, there are some consistent things in every picture. And I've noticed it now as a father of six. I have five daughters and one son. And I noticed from, regardless of the age, as they've gotten older, I look at these family photos and the backdrop changes and the clothing changes based on what my wife tells us to wear for that picture. 
But the things that remain the same are the DNA. There's some characteristics. You can tell a lot about a family based on a photo, can't you? Even when they try to spruce it up. Like, you know, you just know who the jokesters are. You look at my family photo, and you know that me and MJ were trouble. If you know my daughter MJ, you just know like you know. Cute as can be, watch out. There are things that define us. There are things that set us up. If, you have, if you've seen an Anderson kid, you know, oh, that's an Anderson kid. And the thing that I want to tell you about that, why I'm even bringing this up, is because I believe that we are a part of a big family, all of us. And, and we're going to go through different seasons. Style is going to change. There's been a lot of change in the last 10 months under my leadership. Guess what? We're just getting started because three years from now, we're going to change it again. Because styles change, and we're trying to be relevant to reach the people in our communities in a way that makes sense to them. It's not about me. They're, we already do things that are, I think are, are really young and punk, but they're like, you're old. Leave us alone. Let us do what we know how to do. Like, All right, you do your thing, young whippersnapper. <laughs> but there are some things that are consistent. The one thing that will be consistent is that we exist to be a community where people encounter Jesus. And their lives are changed forever. Then there are some characteristics, four characteristics, that are going to drive us. And people within the church, and dare I say, all the more outside the church, will begin to identify us by these characteristics. That regardless of the changing of the seasons or the setting, they'll know who we are and whose we are by our DNA. With your Bibles open, your hearts open, your minds open, let us jump in this morning. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This will again be our primary text over the next four weeks as we are in this together. I want to read and I want to stop and talk a little bit. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. This is on the heels of Jesus' ascension. This is on the heels of the Holy Spirit descending upon the apostles and the disciples on the day of Pentecost. This is on the heels of the first recorded sermon in the New Testament uh, post-Jesus' ascension where Peter gives the address to the crowd and 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus. They bow their heart and bend their knee to Jesus as Savior in one setting. So now the church is growing. In fact, the church has grown from 148 people to 3,148 people overnight. And as the church is growing, there are some things that we see God establishing in the early church, which is where we find the early community, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Here's what we learn about the believers. We learn what they were committed to, and we learn the byproduct of what happened when they honored what God had called them to. All the believers. If you wanted, you could circle the word all the believers, because we're going to spend some time later talking about this. All the believers devoted. That means they were committed to the community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. These are the four things that they were committed to. And the byproduct of these is a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and they shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and they shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day and they met in their homes for the Lord's Supper and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. We see here multiple times, in fact, that they gather. 
that as a community they gather. We see that they gather individually. We see that they gather over meals. We see that they gather in the church collectively. We see that they gather in accountability. We see that they gather to go into the community to serve the needs of those in the community. We see that they gather. This is one of the cornerstones, a pillar of the early church which makes it necessary for us to identify one of our core four being that we will gather as a community. But within the gather, there are three specific things that we do when we gather. And if you are an avid note taker, if you are one of those astute individuals that likes to, to track along, I'm gonna give it all to you. Here, here's the answer sheet right up front. I'm gonna give you the answers so I can focus on the equation, okay? Here you go. The answer is this. We gather so that we can encourage others we gather so that we can exalt the name of God and we gather so that we can equip Christians or equip the saints. We gather so that we can encourage one another. We gather so that we can exalt the name of God and we gather so that we can equip Christians. We're gonna talk about each one of these individually. In fact, we're gonna do it right now. With your finger in Acts chapter two, I want you to flip to your right. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then after Acts, you have got First and Second Corinthians. You have got Romans right in that mix. Let me see, Romans, sorry, right before First and Second Corinthians. Romans, I want you to go to Romans chapter one. And we're gonna look at two verses. Romans chapter one. Verses 10 and 11, I'm sorry, three, and we'll do verse 12 as well. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the church in Rome. He's writing to an early group of believers that are adopting these same principles, these same core values in the church, and he's writing about what matters most. Listen to what he says. Verse 10, one of the things I always pray for is the opportunity. I want to stop for just a minute and talk about that word opportunity. It, it, bears, it bears repeating and explaining. Paul says, one of the things I always pray for is the opportunity. You hear me often, and you'll hear our staff use cultural language around here like purpose. That we are committed to doing church on purpose, with a purpose, for his purpose. We don't ever do anything by mistake. Nothing just falls into place. We don't believe in luck. We don't believe in happiness that we are called to be prepared for what God has in store for us. So we do things on purpose, with the purpose, for his purpose, which I'll explain some more in a moment. But this is not unique to us. The Apostle Paul was praying on purpose. He was praying for the opportunity, uh, God willing, to come at last to see you. Verse 11, for I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by your faith. In the New International Version, it says, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. So what we identify right out of the gate then is that when we gather, our responsibility is to encourage one another. We gather so that we can encourage one another and so that we can be encouraged, which begs the question, how does that work? How are we encouraging others and how are we encouraged? And I want to give us just some practical examples that I think will help us understand how we can encourage others and how we are encouraged. First, I think that one of the biggest forms of encouragement is simply by being present, by being in the moment, by asking clarifying questions and being present. You know, we're coming up on a year now. It's hard to believe that Almost a year ago, November, Stacy and I made the transition from Minnesota to Blair, Nebraska to start a home and to be a part of this church. 
I don't remember much about moving in here other than we had a U-Haul and a, and, and, and a trailer full of stuff. But we pulled up and I don't remember all the people that were there to help us unload our, 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 our family, our lives. What I know is that the number of people that were there, I think there was over 20 people. I'm looking over kind of this way to some people I know that were there. They unloaded six, you know, seven of us. My oldest daughter stayed in Minnesota where she was going to school at Minnesota State University. They unloaded seven people's lives in an hour. Not only did they unload, but then we began to unpack everything. And I don't remember who was all there, but what I remember is a strong, overwhelming sense of joy in the moment that everything was being taken care of. Stacy was happy in the kitchen working away with several women that had brought pulled pork. And I, I remember that, let's be honest. I remember the pulled pork. As they're putting dishes away, and I remember the, the, the women that brought toys for my children to play with and to entertain them. And I remember some of the men that came through the house respecting my wife's wish, wish, wishes in November to take their shoes off every time they stepped on the carpet. So here we got all this heavy furniture, and they're having to take their shoes off, walk on the carpet, come back. Like it, but it was a well-oiled machine. I don't, none of them wanted praise. None of them wanted thank you notes. None of them wanted to be, be singled out. And I don't remember really, I really don't remember who everybody was that was there. I just remember being encouraged by their presence. Oftentimes, greater than any word that we can speak, the encouragement that we have to offer is being present in someone's life. I want to give you an example. My oldest daughter has a propensity toward local missions. She loves working with the homeless population. When she was probably 15 years old, we were in Oregon City. She was going to the church that I was pastoring and was in the youth group. They were involved with uh, a local inner city missions. And there they would make lunches and take these lunches and distribute them among the homeless population. And they were instructed to give the lunches and to ask if they knew Jesus as Lord and Savior. My daughter and several of her friends told a story when they came back and reported to our church that in one occasion, they went to take a meal, and my daughter, if you know anything about me, she's a female version of me, sits on the bench, sits right next to this homeless man, puts her hand right by him and says, how are you? He stopped, and he looked up, and he said, excuse me? And she said, how are you doing? This man, homeless man, lost all of his emotions in that moment, was overcome with, 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 with joy, because he said to my daughter, I cannot remember the last time anyone took an active interest in my life and asked me sincerely how I was doing. The encouragement wasn't in the meal. The encouragement wasn't in, the encouragement was sitting there in that moment being present. One of the greatest things that we have to offer is our presence for people. Another way that we can encourage and that we are encouraged that we see from Paul is by our faith. And I would argue that not only do we encourage other believers in the community of faith, but that people on the outside looking in are encouraged and even inspired by our faith. When they see how we live our lives that is done differently. Several months ago, I had a friend of mine, Michael Bergstrom, come and speak at our church. Michael is a stage four cancer survivor. When Michael was going through cancer, several people would ask Amy, Michael's wife, how they were doing it. And Amy said, we're making it up each day as we go, relying on God. And there's a lot of stories that are in and around Michael's, Michael's miraculous uh, recovery and their story. But they held up benefit dinner where there were a lot of non-Christians that came in and uh, into our church where we did this dinner. 
What was unique to me, what I saw was that they were involved in three distinct communities. They were involved in the church community. They were involved in the dance community where their daughter Hannah dances at the highest level. She's now a freshman, the only freshman on the the varsity dance team at University of St. Thomas. And their son Nathan, they had a soccer community. Nathan is now a sophomore at Augsburg University where he's a part of the soccer team there. The one constant that I saw in all three of them wasn't dance in the, in the soccer, in the church, how they all crossed over, it was that Michael and Amy's faith did not waver depending on which group they were with. And the people that were non-believers looking from the outside in, from the soccer community and from the dance community, were inspired and encouraged by the way Michael and Amy and their family went through this battle with cancer because of their faith. You see, when we live our lives based on our faith and not based on our circumstances, we will not only encourage other believers to stay uh, faithful in the fight, but we will inspire the outside world looking in, wanting to know how they can have what we have. We encourage one another by our gifts. The Apostle Paul says, I long to be with you so I could impart on you some spiritual gifts. I want to give you something of value. And I think that one of the ways that we can encourage one another is by giving our gifts. Sometimes those gifts are tangible. They're monetary or they're physical. I will never forget uh, when the the first significant hurricane happened. My wife and I were newlyweds living in Arizona. uh, And and, uh, St. Louis, not St. Louis, excuse me, New Orleans was was significantly impacted. We had a whole host of immigrants coming in um, that were Haitian and they were from Ghana and all over. My wife and I were able to give away a lot of our things that we were even using. We gave away our bed, our, our bed, our headboard, our, our footboard, sleigh bed, and the bed mat. We gave it away. We gave away our washer and dryer because we realized that we could share with others and we just wanted to give. It doesn't make, and I'm not saying it because I want you to think special of us. I just want to let you know that there are some times where we can give physical, tangible gifts and make an incredible impact and encourage others. But other times it's through the gift of service. It's through the gift of, we have an electrician in our church who has six weeks ago, started coming to our church. Encountered Jesus. His life has been changed forever. He will not miss a service now. And he basically told Pastor Mark this morning that if there's ever an electric problem at the church or a project you're working on, I'm your guy. I want to serve. I just want to serve. It's what I can do. I can give give that way. It's amazing how God is moving and how we can encourage our community and how we can encourage the church by our gifts. Another one is with our words. When you speak life into someone, when you speak life into a situation, when you cut out the sarcasm and the, the, the silliness and you speak life, words can make a whole world of difference. And I literally mean a whole world of difference. And then when we share our lives with others, that's a great form of encouragement. One of, the, one of the easiest parts of transitioning here to Blair, Nebraska, is that we have truly experienced life and ministry with so many of you that has made it um, easy to transition uh, rejoicing, even celebrating this transition. We are called to celebrate our lives together. So let me answer a question that you're not asking, but you should be. If it's a core value at our church that we gather and we gather to encourage, what is the church doing to help us be encouraged? Good question. We have intentionally set up several means by which we want to encourage you and opportunities for you to be an encourager. One of which is Sunday morning celebration services. You might have noticed that we don't call them worship services. And you may have asked yourself, why don't we call it worship services? Because Sunday morning, what we do collectively, this is a celebration. If you remember last week, if you were here, John chapter four, 
Jesus is having a conversation with this woman, calls out her sin, and instead of addressing her sin, she goes to religion. And she says, why is it that you Jews worship down there? We worship up here. You worship that way. We worship this way. Jesus says, believe me, woman, a time is coming and in fact has now come where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and will worship the Father in truth. For this is the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What we learn then is that worship, as it were, is a lifestyle. Worship is every day of the week, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Worship is how we live our lives. We see that throughout scripture. The Bible says that whatever you do, work is unto the Lord, and that becomes an act of worship. So if what we're doing then is each day, every one of us is worshiping God in community, we're worshiping God at our workplace. We're worshiping God in our own growth and knowledge of, of Scripture. We're worshiping God in song. We're worshiping God in spirit. If we're all collectively worshiping individually outside the walls, then what we see as a precedent set up is that all the believers then would come together. They would congregate at the temple for a celebration. They would dance. They would sing. You see, if you look at even one of the earliest examples of this, Peter and John are on their way to worship. There is a man who has been paralyzed from birth. He doesn't even make eye contact with these guys, and he's begging for alms, begging for alms, and he's got his head down, he's broken. And what does Peter do? Peter, outside the gate of beautiful, gets down on his knees, and he says, gold and silver I don't have, but look at me, man. What I have, I give you. Get up and walk. And he gives him the life that comes from the Holy Spirit. He has an encounter with Jesus and it changes his life. That man gets up and he runs into the temple and he begins to dance and celebrate. Guys, this should almost become a, 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 a hard to contain celebration because we all have been worshiping all week long and we can't wait to worship together. We can't wait to celebrate what God's doing. That's what we get to do on Sundays. It's amazing. That's why some of you, uh, I'm not doing it to put on a show. I just, I move forward when I worship because I don't want to step on my wife or hit her in the face. And it's, it's inevitable, it's bound to happen. She, she's not offended when I worship away from her because she knows it's better he does that than me with a black eye. Like I just, I am so excited. I am so excited. When you sing words like, it's your breath that fills my lungs. So I have no other, no other choice but to pour out my praise. You give life. You are love. You are light. I mean, when you sing those words and you realize what wretched brokenness Jesus delivered you from, how can you not celebrate? Amen. So we encourage one another by celebrating together. I love celebrating with you guys. At our church, we gather so that we can celebrate. The second thing within the gather, I talked about it. If you're a good note taker, then you'll know that it's exalt. Exalt. And I'm going to read three passages of scripture. I'm going to give you a heads up. They're going to come up on the screen so you can write them down. But if you want, I would encourage you to turn to Psalm 98. The easiest way to do that is to take your Bible, literally go right to the middle of your Bible, Open it up and you will run right into Psalms or Proverbs. If you hit Proverbs, you've just gone one book too far. Flip back to your left. But you will find Psalm and I want you to turn to Psalm 98. And what I'm going to do, church, is I'm going to read an excerpt from Psalm 98, an excerpt from Psalm 99, and I'm going to read Psalm 100 in its entirety. So from Psalm 98, beginning in verse 4 through 6, it says, Shout to the Lord all the earth. Break out in praise and sing for joy. Sing your praise to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and melodious song, with trumpets and the sound of the ram's horn. Make a joyful symphony before the Lord, the King. 
Psalm 99, 1 through 5, and verse 9. The Lord is king. Let the nations tremble. He sits on his throne between the cherubim. Let the whole earth quake. The Lord sits in majesty in Jerusalem, exalted above the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Your name is holy, mighty king, lover of justice. You have established fairness. You have acted with justice and righteousness throughout Israel. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow low before his feet, for he is holy. And then jump down to verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain in Jerusalem, for the Lord our God is holy. If you jump back up to verse 8 there, or verse 5 there quickly, it says, exalt the Lord our God and bow low before his feet, for he is holy. That is a two-fold example of how we exalt God. One has everything to do with us and our approach. The other thing has everything to do with God and how we lift him up. And finally, Psalm 100. I want to read this psalm to you in its entirety. It says, shout with joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each and every generation. This example of the Psalms is written as a form of worship, and this would have been accompanied by musical instruments, and it would have been sung in the collection of the body, and it would have been sung for, there are two types of song that we sing in church. We sing on purpose. People come in and they want to know why we do music. It is an example that we see written throughout Scripture. And we're going to talk here momentarily about how we exalt God in the act of worship and the different forms of worship. But I want to talk momentarily about music and why we do music the way that we do music. Why do we put such an emphasis on a worship ministry, on a worship team with music and, 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 and with the lights and with the stage and the, the setup and everything that we do? It is because we are called to worship God in singing, and we want to make it easy for you to do that. We are called to worship God in song with our hearts. We are called to worship God in our dance. You, we actually, if you were here several weeks ago, we did a series entitled Live It Up, where we investigated how to live life and live life to the fullest as Christians. And each week, on purpose, we introduced a very different aspect or element of worship. Starting with week one, where we had a dance company come in here and demonstrate their God-given gifts and abilities to a Christian song with Christian lyrics to worship God through dance. We see this in scripture. Michael, uh, sorry, David, Michael's his wife. We're gonna get there in a second. David, King David, is so overcome by God that his worship, he goes out to the center courts and he begins to dance. Not only does David begin to dance, but the Bible says that David got undignified to the point where the brother was a little comfortable and he started taking things off. He ends up dancing naked to which his wife, Michael, looks out the, the, the castle window, the kingdom window and says, Hey, David, you're crazy. Put some clothes on, man. Nobody wants to see. And he said, I can't. Woman, I can't stop worshiping because of God and who he is and what he's done in my life. I'm not suggesting that we start interpretive dancing. I think the more clothes, the better when it comes to that. But the reality is that dance is one act 
that we have of worship, singing. What types of songs are we called to sing? There's two types of songs that we sing at church. One, we sing songs about God. And two, we sing songs to God. When we sing songs to God, we are declaring with the, 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 with the collection of body, the believers, how great God is. We are adoring him collectively. We are celebrating and we are letting him know. We are singing to him how great he is, how awesome he is, how lovely he is, how wonderful he is. And it is a praise. It is a song of adoring or adoration. The other type of song is we sing songs about God. These are songs of theology. These are songs that teach us who we are and whose we are. And we are singing to remind ourselves of how great God is and what he has done. There there is not one example of singing that is greater than another. Whether you sing songs about God or you sing songs to God, they both serve a purpose in the church, and that purpose is to exalt the name of God. We gather to exalt, church, and I want to read for you from the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, open them all the way to Ephesians. You're going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you're going to have Galatians, Ephesians. If you go to Ephesians, which is about seven-eighths of the way through your Bible, Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 15 through 20. Paul writes the church in Ephesus and gives them some clear instructions on what they should do when they exalt. He says, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you, and I pray for you constantly. That's a great passage, but that's not where I'm at. Where I'm at is Ephesians chapter 5. Amen. Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> Ephesians chapter... Got to start preaching from notes, church. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Y'all knew it too. Y'all knew it. Y'all said, he just said 5. Why is he doing... Some, you didn't say anything, Stacy. <laughs> you are my wife, for heaven's sakes. I have to trust you. You got my staff sitting here watching me make a fool of myself. My wife... Y'all are just, all right. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. It says, uh, sorry, chapter 5, verse 15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Talking about the cheap imitations of the Samaritan woman last week. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here at my church, we will gather, and when we gather, we will not only encourage, but we will exalt the name of God. Uh, if you look at Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the example that they give for exalt is to elevate, and it does a poor job of truly understanding what this is. I told you earlier that there's two parts of this exaltation. The first has to do with us, and the other has to do with God. The first part that has to do with us comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, where, God, where, where Peter tells us that we are called to humble ourselves, and at the right time, God will lift us up. And here's what I believe about exalting God. That until we truly humble ourselves, we will never really experience the fullness of exalting God. Until we're able to humble ourselves, to recognize our position and our full reliance on God. That word worship, that word humble in the original language, when you talk about humility and worship coupled together, I want to help you with the word picture here. 
What they are talking about, what this literally refers to, is both an attitude as much as it is an action. The attitude was of the mind and the heart, and the action was in the body. What they refer to then is that when they would humble themselves, they would fall prostrate before the individual, and before God, they would lay themselves flat like this, arms wide, at the lowest position. They could go no lower. This was an action that followed an attitude, and the attitude was that you were, in all things in your life, exalting God over yourself. We see this, this is popular in, in movies about kingdoms and knights, You'll see a man who goes off to war and he'll be a man of valor and he'll come back before the king and his throne and his kingdom. And the king will come into him and he has no option or choice but to bow before the king and to lower his head. And the king then will celebrate his obedience and his actions and will knight him by taking his sword on each one of his shoulders and will elevate him or lift him up. But it begins with humbling. Do you know that in most Asian cultures, in I think about Japanese culture, specifically in the 18th and 19th century, that it was, you could not be on the same level as the emperor. You had to be lower than at all times. If the emperor was standing, you would have to sit. If the emperor was sitting, you would have to kneel. You would always have to be lower than the emperor, and you could not make contact with the emperor's eyes unless invited What this is doing is this is an example then, church, of elevating God or exalting God by humbling our hearts, by saying, God, I surrender. You are greater than I am, and everything I have is yours. You, I exalt you in my life. I exalt you in my relationships. I exalt you in my finances. I exalt you in my workplace. I exalt you as a father. I exalt you as a wife. I exalt you in my church. I exalt you in all things. It is an action that is following an attitude. The second piece to that has everything to do with how we exalt God. We exalt God by our actions. There are several practices that we put in place in the local church. And I want to share just a few of them that we're going to do or that we have done here at our church as an intentional way of exalting the name of God. We've talked about it already. Music. We've talked about it already. Dancing. But if you remember the Live It Up series, you'll remember then that we introduced art as a way of worship. We introduced spoken word or monologue as a way of worship. We will introduce uh, different skits as a way of worship. We will introduce music and prayer as a way of worship. We will introduce fasting as a way of worship. We will introduce obedience to God as the greatest act of worship, not popular opinion, but what God calls us to. We introduce reading the word of God as an act of worship, which we'll talk more about. And one of the most uncomfortable to talk about in the church, specifically for pastors to the congregation, is the act of worship through giving, through the tithes and offerings, to exalt God, to literally say, God, I place you above my finances. I don't understand why it's so difficult for churches to address this or people to process this. Because if you want examples of worship, go back to the original worshipers and the original audience, and and the audience was God, the original worshipers were Cain and Abel, and they worshiped through giving. They gave of their first fruits. They gave of their very best. We see giving as an act of worship from the earliest in Genesis, don't we? We also exalt God by serving others. And we have got an incredible mission team on the ground in Houston right now. 
Where are you exalting God in your life and in the church? And finally, the third pillar of the gather piece, we gather so that we can encourage, we gather so that we can exalt. The third is that we gather to equip the believers. And I wanna read two passages of scripture with you. If you hold your finger in Ephesians, because we're gonna come back to that, you flip to your right just a few books, you're gonna run into a, le- a few letters with the T's, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. If you hit Titus, you've gone too far. Turn back to Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And here's what it says about equipping. All scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. Church, if you've been here any length of time, you've heard me say that we believe that the word of God is active and alive and being written on our hearts today. That's not to say that we believe that the Bible is incomplete and words are being added to it. Instead, we believe that as we surrender our lives to Jesus and as we adopt the word of God, the words come from page and to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then takes those words and penetrates our lives and changes everything. It becomes alive in us. This is where we get this from. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful. It becomes alive. It's active and living. This is an active present. This is, uh, this is, this is something that continues that is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it, the scriptures, to prepare and equip his people to do every good word. Every good work. I want to talk a minute about the scriptures. I want to explain why several weeks ago we went away from putting the scripture up on the screens. It wasn't because I needed another reason to make you mad at me. It wasn't because I wanted some more controversy in the church or I wanted to stir the pot or shake up the the hornet's nest. That's not what it was. The reason that we went away from putting the scripture on the walls very intentionally, yes, we are aware that it's not there. The reason is because I do not want to raise a bunch of anemic Christians. I would much rather give you a Bible to have and to keep and to teach you how to use it so that when you leave these walls, not the walls, when you leave the building, it's not left on the walls, but you can take it home, continue to learn, continue to grow, and by all means, apply it to your lives. I want you to be equipped and well-versed with the Word of God, with the Bible, what it is, how many books of the Bible, where they are, Old Testament, New Testament, how to use it, how to navigate through it. This is imperative, church. So I'm not doing it to be cumbersome or a bother to you. It would, frankly, we get out of here a little quicker with when we do big things like this because it'd just be on the, uh, instead of having to flip back and forth. But that, I'm not doing anybody any favors. I want to raise us up to do the work that God's called us to, the work of rightly dividing his word. The other reason is because it's just awesome. Like, I would love to see you every week coming here with a, a, a school pouch full of markers and colored pencils and pens so that as you're reading, you're circling, you're highlighting, you're underlining, you're writing down questions, you're writing down observations, you're looking at parallels. If you look at any Bible in my office except the one I preach from right now, the only reason I don't preach from those Bibles, uh, they're full of coloring. It looks like one of my girls got a hold of it. It, The only reason I don't preach from that anymore is because I get too distracted. I'm like, oh yeah, that was a good point. (laughs) And so I have to preach with with a Bible that is just the words so that I don't get lost as though it helps. I would love for you to decorate your Bible with questions and observations and what God's teaching you. Turn back to Ephesians. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. Here's what it says. It's going to talk about the five-fold ministry. Five-fold ministry. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church. That word church is not the German word in the 15th century, which we phonetically look at it and it's pronounced in our language, Kirch. But Richard, Pastor Richard has been to Germany several times and he came to me and said, that's not how they say it in German. They say it like Kerka. Take Richard up for that. I don't know anything about that. I just know it looks like Kirch when I read it in English. That word Kirch or Kerka is referring to bricks and mortar. This word that we are reading right here is referring to the ecclesia. The ecclesia literally means the gathering, the body of believers. So when it says their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, he's not talking about building on bricks and mortar. He's not talking about carpet and and stage. He's not talking about hallways and murals. He's not talking about any of that stuff. He is talking about you. He's talking about your neighbor, And he's talking about me, that we are the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we come to such unity. I'd love for you to circle that word unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that will make me mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, knowing in every or growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church, the ecclesia. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. There are two things that we need to talk about. Number one, we have to talk about unity and maturity. Do you notice how they're hand in hand? Do you notice how twice here Paul points out that unity and and, and maturity are hand in hand? That as we become mature in Christ, we will be more and more unified as the body of Christ. Which begs the question then, if we are not unified as a body, if there is dissension amongst people or there's division in the church, then we must be lacking what? Maturity. The problem is, at every turn, when you see division or dissension, it is moved away from the gospel, it is moved away from the truth, it is moved away from what God calls us to, and it has moved into personal opinions, pride, religion, and superimposing our own expectations. And whenever personal pride and and personal experiences and expectations, and we start superimposing that stuff on others in the church or the church, happens, we are going to sow seeds of dissension, however intended or not, and it will cause division, which will cause the church to separate, creating disunity. Disunity does not honor or glorify God or exalt his name. Disunity is a sin. The reason that we need to know these things is so that we can be unified as a body. The second thing that we have to look at, 
The second thing that I would be remiss if I did not address in verse 15 and 16, he says, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Church, we were never intended to come and be absent bystanders. Absent in our, in, our, in our participation and bystanders in that we just sit here and watch it go by. That is not the church. This is not a concert. This is not a performance. This is not a motivational speech with some good music. We are called to be the body of believers, each one of us, to be active participants. Which leads to me having to address. I don't want to, but I have to. Membership in the local church. I'm about to shake that nest. The only thing that the Word of God teaches about membership in the local church has nothing to do with constitutions or bylaws or articles of incorporation, or having attended a series of membership classes. It doesn't say anything about having a right to vote. In fact, did you know, church, that the last time the church voted under the, 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 the leadership of the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ was in Acts, after Judas hung himself, the apostles looked amongst each other and said, we need to replace Judas. They, they asked of God. They, looked at, they studied the 148 people. They considered those who met the qualifications of an elder. They then wrote those two names down on rocks. They would have put those rocks in what we might consider look like a walk where you would make stir fry. They would have prayed that the Holy Spirit would reveal the person that he wanted, not we, he wanted to replace Judas. They would have prayed and stirred the pot until one rock fell out and one remained, which was Matthias. And Matthias, that's the last time you see a vote in the Bible. So this idea of membership that we have in the, the plural church, I'm not picking on our church or any other church. This is a, a, a problem that's pretty rampant. It's really about a 200-year-old problem. And I understand a need for regulations and, and, and government standards, and we have to have certain things in place. But the idea of membership, that we're not going to participate in the church until we become members, is grossly misunderstood. The only thing the Bible says about membership is that when we're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. And that those who are in Christ are counted among the members of the body of Christ. Under my leadership, there's no amount of class that you need to take to actively participate as a member of a church that is committed to being a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. What I do ask is that we exercise the mandates of Scripture, which tell us that we all have a part to play. And my question to you isn't if you're serving. My question to you, if you call this your church, is where are you serving? Where are you being equipped? So here in my church, we gather to equip. And where are some things that we, we equip? Well, Sundays, reading and examining Scripture. That's why we, that's why we do uh, the Word of God the way we do it. 
Learning sessions. How many of you know that at the 9.15 hour, we have two learning opportunities right now in our learning classes. One is taught by uh, Scott Booth, who is a, a uh, professor at Pillar Seminary. It's on the biblical narrative, understanding the Bible. And he's doing a brilliant job of helping our people learn how to read the Bible and, and understand it in a, in a unique way. The second one is taught by one of our leaders here at our church, Kevin Barnhill. And that is in the fellowship hall. And that is a study through the book of Galatians. Kevin and Amy both, if you know anything about them, they have both preached here at our church in the last 10 months, are phenomenal communicators of God's word, and they know the word of God. Those are two opportunities to get equipped in, in, in knowing the word of God. Other ways that we equip here, we have age-specific ministries. We've got ministries for our kids. We've got Awanas on Wednesday night. We've got Sunday school. We've got our kids doing their own thing. They're getting after it and learning about God. And my MJ, my little MJ, she comes home singing all the time, all the things she's learning, and she's learning through song. It's awesome how she's doing that. And she's teaching Brienne, my two-year-old. I love that. It's so exciting. Uh, we're learning through, we've got our men's ministry, which is kicking off. Just so you know, get your pencils out, guys. In February, we are going to have our first ever men's conference. We are going to be gone in Dayton, Iowa for three days. I'll let you know more details about that as it comes. But we are praying for 100 men from our church and our community to get together for three days to grow in relationships and to grow in God. Wives, if you can hear me and you just heard me say that, clear your husband's calendar. I think it's February 17, 18, and 19. You clear it out for him. They need to be there. And you find the money. It's like a third of what it cost to go to the women's retreat last year. I think it's like 100 bucks. So it's going to be awesome. Uh, <laughs> too soon still? Uh, women's ministry. We, we have a phenomenal women's ministry here. We have a phenomenal women's ministry here. Like, and it's growing leaps and bounds. My wife, she, she, she's excited about a lot of things God's doing here at this church. The preaching is number one. But after the preaching, <laughs> my wife loves the women's ministry. She looks forward to being gone on Thursday nights, not just to avoid the kids or me, but because she likes to be in the presence of other women where they can learn and grow together. We've got an amazing women's ministry led by an amazing woman of God who's building up a team around her to establish a long-term, healthy, successful ministry in women's. Uh, we have got life groups. Oh my goodness, we've got life groups. If you're not involved in a life group, my only question isn't like, no, I, I'm not going to ask you. Get involved in a life group. Like, you need to be there. That's accountability that's growing in the Bible, that's growing in your knowledge and your understanding. We offer Financial Peace University to equip people with knowing how to honor God in their finances. We offer Stevens Ministries for people who are going through hardships in life, in relationships that need counseling. We offer, we offer on-site counseling for people who need to, to meet with a professional counselor. We offer fit coaching through our connections team that every single person that comes to the door can meet with Jeannie Gensler or Shannon Livermore of our connections team and learn how to find their fit, how to use their experiences, their gifts, their talents, and their spiritual gifts to fit within the church. We offer relational accountability. Like we have a lot that we do here at this church by way of, of equipping because it matters. So at my church, we are a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. And as we gather, we gather for three reasons. We gather to encourage one another. And can I just encourage you that at four o'clock today over at Grandpa's farm, off of 133 heading south toward Homana, on the left-hand side, about four miles outside of town, some of you are new to the church and said, did that boy just say Homana? 
MJ, my four-year-old, does not know how to call it Omaha. It's only Homana. And the other thing too, can I, can I share a personal story for a second with you guys? I do anyway. <laughs> I was gone last week. I was working remotely. I was in Seattle with my son. Uh, I had some work to do and my son had some unique opportunities with, uh, with soccer, playing with the Seattle Sounders. And while we were there, I was in the Northwest. I flew into Portland. And as I flew into Portland, I got to see some people that we know and we drove through kind of where I grew up. And then we drove up to Washington where the first church I ever served was 40 minutes from Seattle. I love the Northwest. Love the Northwest. Not yesterday. They lost to Arizona State by three. Yesterday, yesterday I was a Huskers fan. We beat them. We got them. We got Rutgers good, didn't we, guys? Go Big Red. As we left Seattle and we hit Dallas-Fort Worth, and we made our way to the next flight. We got on the plane heading toward Nebraska. Something unique happened as we landed. This is gonna sound maybe really insignificant to you, but you have to understand how significant it is to me and my wife. She doesn't even know, I, she didn't even know this happened. My son does, because I elbowed him. As we were going to land, two things happened. Guys, lean in for a second. About 100 yards, and the, the, the distance will matter in a second. About 100 yards from the runway where we were landing, was a pool of water. And as we were flying over, it was beautiful. It was green. It was sunny. I could see the cornfields and the soybeans. As we flew in, right there was an eight-point buck, a hundred yards from the, from the runway. And I elbowed Kate, and I'm like, bro, look at this. It was taunting me. The second thing that happened was that I got excited to be home in Blair, Nebraska. I was excited to be home. In my community, with my family, we've been to 42 states and we've lived all over the country. And this is the fastest that we have ever felt like this place of any place was home. I love you. I am privileged to be your pastor. I'm excited for what God is doing in our church. And I love that we get to be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. Oh, that's where I was going with that, 133. Yeah, Homana, Blair, all right. Today, four o'clock, Grandpa's Farm. Come and encounter God in relationships as we gather. We're gonna eat lots of food. Like, I've been promised there's lots of food. Maybe they're lying to me just to get me there, but I'm, I'm believing it, and I'm going. And we're going to have inflatables for the kids. We're going to have kettle corn. We're going to have games. We're going to have hay rides. And who didn't even love a hay I like a hay ride. I'm 39 years old. I'm like, <laughs> I love hay rides. We're going to get to shuck corn. The kids are going to get to grind it. We're going to make braided ropes, like all kinds of games. There's all kinds of stuff. Come on, 4 o'clock today. The only football game that matters was yesterday, and we won. You can DVR the rest. We don't have a, an NFL team here. Just, just come on. Come on. Four o'clock. And bring somebody with you. Man, I love you guys. Welcome to church.